Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are going to be discussing Thomas Hardy's novel, Tess of the Durbervilles. Now, okay, let's start here. Karen, before I even welcome you to the show, make sure we're pronouncing the name of this book correctly. About any pronunciations, but I do say Durbervilles. Now, of course, it's supposed to be, you know, it's a, it's a, a decline of a French name, which would be like Durbervilles, I guess. <laughs> Um, but it is set, the novel is set in England. So the English would pronounce it, not pronounce it that way. But we also have a clue because the, um, the, the ancient name has declined even further to Derby Field. Mm. Um, so I think any approximation works. Okay. (laughs) So as long as we're in the area, we'll be fine. Well, Karen, this is, this is great. This is, I think your fourth time. On the, sh- the show, is that right? I think so. That's right. I sent out an wow. email that I said third, and I, I think I had forgotten Frankenstein, maybe, because you came on for Sense and Sensibility, uh, Frankenstein. Um, we did Jane Eyre. You came on for that, right? And then now it's Tess, so four times. That's right. That's right. Four out of uh, six of the books in the series. Which leaves good. us right. two books to do in the future, if you ever want That's to. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Scarlet Letter would be a one, is actually a book we get um, requested pretty often. So that might be a fun one to do one year. Um, now, one of the reasons you're on now is because this edition of Tess just came out, the one that with your guide to reading and reflecting through BNH, and it came out with or alongside The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. So first of all, congratulations on the launch of these new books. Uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, how, are you glad to have these books, like to not be thinking about them anymore, except for thinking about them as a piece of literature? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am in the sense because I'm working on my next book, which is a, you know, my own book, not an edited volume. Mm-hmm. And so it does feel good to have this series, you know, completed and closed, at least for now, who knows what the future holds, but um, the set is done. It was a lot of work, a lot of um, uh, labor and love. And it's, you know, the close reads folks were part of the process and that's what makes mm-hmm. it so cool cool helping to pick the cover designs and the colors and even i do want to say um i really i think i chose the scarlet letter um in great part because i because i asked in in the close reads group kind of which novel they would prefer out of whatever ones i was thinking about so yeah thanks <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know everyone's everyone's excited we've sold a bunch of them in our shop and i know a lot of people have bought them through the um, goldberry uh, bookshop org page as well. So thanks to everyone who's been supporting Karen and Goldberry at the same time. So I'm really excited to talk about Tess. Heidi, have you read this book before? I have, but it's been years, many years. I, I think I've only read it once and I read it in my, Karen, you'll appreciate this, in my English novel class in college, which I know <laughs> is what you teach. So that's one of the last I read it. Uh, Karen, I would ask if you read it, but that'd be kind of strange if you hadn't. <laughs> what about you, David? Had you so, read it before? I have never read this book, okay. which which for me was one of the exciting things about doing this on the show, because I, I like experiencing these books for the first time mm-hmm. with people who, like you, who are, are experts on them, but also just within this community. Um, it's not a book that I actively chose not to read before. It's just, I never had it either assigned in a 
college class like Heidi did or like the ones you teach. And I just kind of never worked its way up to the top of my list. I've read, I think I read Jude the Obscure uh, and I've read a bunch of Hardy's poetry. I just don't know why, you know, Tess just slips through the cracks. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it though. So can I ask just for my own um, delight and amusement, I guess. Um, so are you, are you, you're still in the process of, you're just reading like slightly ahead as we have these conversations. So you haven't finished yet. I, I have guess, not, like, I have not finished okay. yet, but I, what I will say is it's an, it's one of those books that I pretty much know. Okay. The, key, oh. the broad strokes of okay. the plot, because okay. it's, I don't know, you're, it, you read enough books about books, right, people reference right. it. You know, it's kind of like yeah. everyone knows how Anna Karenina ends probably right, if you, even right. if you haven't read. Right. Or okay. That, all right. You know, oh, darn. Books, so. But, yeah. but I mean, but I don't, I don't know all the details. I know kind of the broad strokes and, um, you know, I don't know how the puzzle pieces fit together. I've only kind of like glanced at the box of the puzzle, if that makes sense. <laughs> okay, good. Now, this is just for people who don't know. Um, this is the book is Test of the Durbervilles. Uh, the subtitle um, a pure woman faithfully presented. So Thomas Hardy wrote this. It appeared in a censored and serialized version published by the British uh, newspaper, The Graphic, in 1891, before eventually showing up in three volumes um, in 1891 as a book, and then again in, in one volume in 1892. Now, that's just... I'm reading from Wikipedia here. So Karen, if that needs to be corrected, then by all means, correct me here. But as we get into it, um, I'd love... If, I was wondering if you could kind of go over why you chose this book, why you think it's, you know, you can only choose six novels for this project. So why you think it's that, that worth reading, you know, why it's kind of that high up in the canon. And then at some point we should talk about, give a little bit of a preview of what to expect tone wise and some things like that, as well as talk about that, the, the, the censoring factor going on with this book. So let's start with that first bit, jump in with, Kind of why why choose this book as one of six alongside Frankenstein and Sense and Sensibility and so forth? Great question. And of course, for anyone who hasn't followed along or doesn't know or remember, just I always like to point this out that this series um, is centered on first of all books that are in my area of expertise, which is 18th and 19th century, century British literature primarily. I mean, I, I did do the Scarlet Letter, that token American novel, um, but also books that were in the public domain. So. A lot of people were like, why, you know, I wanted to do 1984, um, but it's not in the public domain. So, so that we just stuck with those books. And then within that category, which is still pretty big, I, I picked um, books, you know, six books that I thought complemented one another well and kind of presented a wide array, uh, you know, relatively speaking. But this particular book I chose because it is one of my all time lifelong favorites. Hmm. And what better reason could there be than to, to choose this book? Um, it's a personal favorite and has been since I first read it, which I actually can't even remember when that was, um, whether it was high school or college. I just all I remember is the feeling of it. Mm. Um, and uh, I've, but I've also taught it for many years in, in the English novel class that I teach. And it's been a delight and joy to teach. It's, it's, a, it's a novel students love and resonate with. And more and more, as we'll talk about as we go along, there are the themes and the complexities. And well, I mean, just starting with the, the subtitle that you already mentioned, the idea of a pure woman and what constitutes a pure woman. These are things that that everyone, but particularly young people, college age people are struggling with, um, mm. especially in a, you know, in a Christian environment. Um, there are lots yeah. of, 
lots of conversations around that. So this book really mm. resonates with, with um, people in that stage of life who are reading it for their first time. So I love to teach it. Mm. I wonder, I, I would love to hear from the audience how many people are reading this for the first time. We've, 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 there's been some chatter on the page about how they're worried about this book being tragic, kind of dark. Because we did just read As I Lay Dying, followed by 1984, and now Tess. And the scheduling was a little, just getting every, managing all the schedules was kind of why the books fell the way they did. Um, but hey, it came off of an Agatha Christie book, right? So, so the, you call this a tragedy, but I was thinking when I was reading it, that this reads in a very different way. There's a different energy to it than 1984 or As I Lay Dying. And it reads to me more like, you know, Jane Eyre or something like that, where there is kind of this, this kind of dark undercurrent in some ways, but it doesn't, the, the tone of the writing is not as bleak mm-hmm. as say Orwell's is in 1984. So when you say it's a tragedy without giving away the ending for people who haven't finished it yet, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about how, how to experience that tragedy in the best way as readers? Like what should we look for tone wise, or is it purely it's tragic in like, the Shakespearean Aristotelian, we're like, you know, it's, it ends in a certain way. And so that makes it a tragedy. No, no, this is a really good question. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at um, avoiding spoiler uh, spoilers with the, with <laughs> at this point, because yeah. I've taught it so much. Right. Um, so I, I hope it's, you know, it's not a spoiler to say it's a tragedy and it's also not a spoiler to say it's a tragedy in the Aristotelian sense. Um, so I think that actually, and I'll unpack that a little bit, but that answers your question, a truly Aristotelian tragedy, which I'll explain in a minute is, is a cathartic experience is a cleansing experience. I mean, that's what Aristotle actually talks about in poetics when he defines what constitutes, you know, um, classical tragedy. So, so even though there are parts of this that are filled with hope and joy and lightness and beauty, lots of those parts, um, where we don't have, I mean, I think a book like 1984 is more nihilistic almost. I mean, Mm. So, so that's a different kind of, it's actually not even really tragic in the classical sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but that beauty and that joy and that lightness that you talked about is actually kind of what helps make the book tragic because uh, it's so disappointing. Sorry, everyone. But um, <laughs> but the, the things to look for um, in terms of classical tragedy are, of course, in, in ancient times, there would be the role of like the gods or fate. Um, we don't have gods in Hardy's world. He's really you know, dismissive of, of religion as kind of an ancient myth and superstition, but we do have in place of, um, gods or fate, we have a, a, a determinism, a natural determinism, um, which kind of plays the same role, but we also have characters who are making choices and they are making choices that we as readers kind of stand alongside and scream, no, no, don't do that. Or, oh, do this. Um, (laughs) And so with the outcome, it's hard, you know, there's this tension, like, was this determined or could the whole thing have changed entirely if one person had made one different decision at any point in the story? Mm. Heidi, can you jump in here? Because you've been reading these books alongside, and I think you even made a comment on the thread that you're like, something like, I think your exact words are girl, me too, or something like that, commenting on the person who said that they were having a little bit worried about the consecutive bleak books. Um, so do you, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth as far as using the word bleak. Do you feel a difference between like 1984 and, and this? Like how, how do you feel about the 
tragedy, the tragedy aspect of all these books that we've been reading? Is it, you just don't want to be sad three books in a row? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm, I'm thinking about it slightly differently, less in terms of three books in a row that we're reading on the podcast that are sad, uh, because this is literature. Welcome to literature. Literature explores the human experience, which is often really hard. Um, and all great stories have a sad part. Uh, and, uh, Sometimes there's a shift and sometimes it ends there. I don't mind that. I think I'm thinking about it in terms of um, uh, I, it's while you're talking, Karen, I was thinking what an interesting juxtaposition of this book from the last book we all read together, which was Jane Eyre. Uh, this, they both uh, and we're just finishing Anna Karenina uh, for the subscriber podcast. And it's just such an interesting juxtaposition with the, these three strong central female characters. Uh, it's particularly with Jane Eyre, which you and I read together, that there's these, you know, two central female figures desired by men of higher social positions and the books uh, examine social convention as well as personal psychology and moral character and all of these things. And yet one goes one way and the other goes the other way. And, and that's where I just feel sad for Tess. I want the same thing for her that Jane has, and it doesn't go that way um, because she's delightful. And, um, and so I think, but that is the greatness of the novel to your point about an Aristotelian tragedy. That's not something to be in to be avoided or rejected, but to be fully entered into as readers, like allow yourself to go there because that's the power of the novel. So I do dread it a bit, but at the same time, I'm going to let myself go under with it because that's how you read this book. That is how you read this book. Heidi, you mentioned that Tess is delightful. I think that's what you were saying, right? That, mm -hmm. That's part of that. And then, yes, and Karen, you said that's She's kind of part of what makes it tragic, the, the beauty and all that sort of stuff. So how do you... One of the things that I was kind of interested in reading this section is how quickly Thomas Hardy makes her an appealing character. I mean, he does say that she's beautiful, right? And, but I don't even mean that. Like, Lots of authors can describe a woman or, or a man as being beautiful or handsome or whatever words they need to use to do that. But she is so compelling as a person. And I was, how, do you, how does he pull that off? Because having read it for the first time, I'm kind of just letting that wash over me. When you get to the end of this section, she's, she's at this big house and she's eating strawberries against her will and so forth. You've already gotten to the point where you're kind of a fan of this person. And it's not just because she's kind of has this plight within her family. But there is, I don't know, for lack of a better word, having only read this for the first time, really, there's an energy about her, which is appealing and, and which is, which makes her a compelling character. How does he go about pulling that off for those of us who are reading this for the first time and haven't done the close reading yet that, that we know you have done? Can you point to a few ways that he does that, Karen? One of the things you just said that I was going to point to is you talked about her plight within her family. I think that's key because here yeah, she is yeah. she's this figure who is lively and delightful and stands out you know from her family and from a crowd um 
And, uh, but we can sense right away that she's kind of stuck, right? She's stuck in her family. She's stuck in, in this situation. And so she's immediately someone who just stands out as an individual and, and someone who's, who mm. is um, going against the grain and someone that we want to root for. Um, so it's not just her, you know, her physical appearance. I mean, she is a beautiful young girl that, you know, we all would um admire and and uh, find attractive in in some way but she's in this situation in life that we immediately sympathize with like she's surrounded by this family that doesn't you know that is dragging her down and she's the oldest and she has all this responsibility um and she's um and then we find her within within the other town girls and she stands out from them. So she's a unique individual, which is really what the early novels are, are doing is presenting us with unique individuals who are in a situation that in which we want them to overcome. And they usually do in some way. So, um, mm. yeah, you, you say the early novels are presenting us with unique individuals. Are you saying that like as opposed to sort of archetypes or tropes or something that you might have seen like in Greek tragedy or something. Right, exactly. I mean, the 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 novel, and I think I've talked about this on other other episodes, especially with uh, with Jane Eyre. The novel developed as a form centered on the individual as kind of a new newly emerging idea, um, and so that's why the early novels tend to they aren't always, but they tend to just have titles that are names of characters like Pamela yeah. or Tom Jones yeah, 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 or yeah, Jane yeah. Eyre, yeah. right? Yeah. And so. They are they are about uh, the modern individual and the rise of the modern individual, um, and that's been going on by the time we get to test for almost a couple, well, for about a century and a half, um, almost two centuries. These novels are being written about unique individuals, and so Hardy is actually in writing a tragedy that harkens back to um, classical themes and patterns. Is actually kind of rejecting the hope and the and the um optimism of the victorian age and this hmm. time hmm. do you um what novels would you compare this book to like what do you see it as kind of um owing a debt to like the novels that came before it or, or you know you mentioned that he's coming at 150 years after the beginning of the the novel kind of taking shape so he was writing this in the late 1800s by now we already have Huckleberry Finn, you know, we've got Hawthorne and, you know, a lot of the novels that we think of as kind of being core texts of English language literature have been, are out in the world. But what does he, what, like, which ones do you think he most closely owes a debt to and, and seems to be drawing on? Hmm, that's a really good question. I might have to think about it um, to answer in the way you're asking, but I do want to point out that this was um, Hardy's, he wrote about 15 novels, if I'm remembering the number correctly. Um, and this is his next to last one. And so he's actually, in my mind, he's more or less developing kind of his own novelistic themes and getting darker and darker and more pessimistic as he goes along. And, you know, you read Jude the Obscure, David, you know, that one is even darker yeah. than this one. <laughs> so, yeah, so I want to I want to think about that question a bit more because Hardy was first and foremost a poet. Um, right. And so um, so I haven't really thought about what you know, in terms of the novels that he might've been influenced by or that we see echo here. So I don't know, mm. Heidi, do you have any thoughts? George Eliot comes to mind. I think that 
that kind of Victorian realism. I mean, I know they were overlapping in time, but I think Elliot may have written before Hardy, but I don't know that for sure. That's just a guess. Well, I, I think that's a good guess because what we see in Elliot and Hardy and Edmund Goss and, and so many others toward the end of the, of the Victorian age is a rejection of kind of the, the bright, cheery, earnest evangelicalism um, that brought about Victorian culture. And so um, there was a, a darker realism and, and overall rejection of, of faith. So one of the things that, that I, how can you not notice this, but that I was marking a lot when reading is um, Hardy kind of breaking the the wall, you know, <laughs> kind of turning to the reader in a kind of knowing way that kind of steps outside of the book as this this sort of external voice commenting on even things like politics or having opinions about things that is things that are happening in the novel. And is that something that is a sort of Hardyism? broadly speaking, you think, or is that something that's more unique to this book? I didn't remember it a lot in Jude the Obscure, but also it was a bit a while since I read that. So that, you know, I'd have to go back and check, but he just seems really like he's an author who's telling a story, but he also seems very opinionated about the story that he's telling. (laughs) And I, it's like kind of, it's interesting because at times it seems to take you out and at times, sometimes it seems to be reflecting on the story and getting getting a hold of that rhythm is kind of an interesting experience as a reader. No, that's a really important observation because Hardy is very much an omniscient narrator here. And later in the story, as things get complicated and develop, and we start to have really conflicted um, feelings about the characters and (laughs) what they've done and what they haven't done. Hardy gives us a lot. I don't even want to say them clues. He tells us how to interpret. He tells us about um, the character, what's inside, whether they are a stubborn character or a proud character, all these different flaws. So the, the characters, you know, he, he both shows and tells and he weaves it together so well that it doesn't come necessarily across that way. Um, but we really do have to believe the narrator when he tells us that a character is, you know, is, is proud or is stubborn or whatever it is that he tells us about them. Heidi, there's this line in chapter five that Mm -hmm. I initially rolled my eyes at rather significantly. And then I spent time thinking about it. Um, And it's at the bottom of 83. As Tess grew older and began to see how matters stood, she felt quite a Malthusian toward, or she felt quite a Malthusian towards her mother for thoughtlessly giving her so many little sisters and brothers when it was such a trouble to nurse and provide for them. And Karen generous as she is, gives us a note that Thomas Malthus was an English economist whose theories about overpopulation advanced the idea of population control. So that's one of those things where you kind of, it really helps to have that knowledge um, of the book, kind of like reading the Inferno or something and running across people who you never heard of in, in Hades or something. Does that, how does something like that work for you in a book like this? Or, or how do you read that? How do you begin? What, what questions does it raise besides who's Malthus? <laughs> and did you, does it work for you? Yeah. Modern readers aren't, we don't love this, right? We want to be shown, not told, but this is not a modern novelist. This is a Victorian novelist. And even though he may have rejected Victorian moralism, he still exists within the culture in which he was born, right? And so Victorian novelists will tell you what to think and feel 
um, and will tell you exactly how to interpret their work. Uh, and that is, I mean, that is part of reading a Victorian novel. Um, so you have to suspend the expectation of show, don't tell in reading these kinds of novels. Although as a modern, because I live and breathe and have my being within the modern literary <laughs> landscape, sometimes I want to take an, a pen and 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 throw it out and say, don't tell me what to think about Alec yet. Let me figure it out. Yeah. You've actually written this so beautifully that I already know he's the villain. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> yeah. um, but so there's a little bit of me that resists that. But then I also think I, as a reader, I have to put myself under the author and not over the author. Karen, is this, is like that kind of thing, is that appealing? Like, is that one of the things that you find appealing about? Like the way he approaches things like that and, and isn't afraid to jump in and give his opinion? Or is it something that for, for you being a modern as well, like, you, you know, it kind of bugs you, but you, you kind of accept it. Because when I first read it, it kind of bugs me, kind of drives me crazy. And it's like a me problem. I'm not saying the book is the problem. I'm just saying, you know, the kind of things I typically like to read and kind of makes, kind of drives me crazy. Not saying it's in really impacting my sense of my, my experience with it. But, you know, it's my personal tick. So for you, how do you read stuff like that? Is it is it part of the appeal? It, it is part of the appeal. I mean, I love I love Victorian literature and I love the 18th century literature is even can be even even worse. Um, uh, but yeah. this goes yeah. this goes yeah. back to a point you raised at the beginning that we kind of forgot to to get around to. Um, and that's the subtitle. And again, I don't want to give spoilers, but when Hardy calls this subtitles this book a pure woman faithfully presented he's making an argument he is criticizing his entire culture um he's tr criticizing you know the idea of what makes a woman pure and so he, he this whole novel is a social criticism um and so mm -hmm. that's what it is and to resist that you know makes you know i mean people if you resist it too much, you just won't like the novel because it's all yeah. throughout. But that, <laughs> right. that line that you gave, I mean, it's a really good example of this omniscient narrator who, because it's not Tess who, you know, has like a second grade education who's saying, oh, my, you know, yeah, I, right. I believe, I believe Malthus and we yeah. should be. But <laughs> yeah, So Hardy is like, but what he's doing, it's so layered is, is he's showing that, that Tess has this sort of, um, you know, this sort of primitive attitude or sense like, oh, you know, why are parents having so many children that they can't feed? She's not putting it in philosophical terms, but Hardy is showing us how he's showing us the, the problems that he sees in the, in the culture and he's and, and pointing them out. But he's also showing how all of us, even someone as young and simple as Tess, kind of absorb um, the questions and complexities of our culture and, and, and she's, she sees them. She doesn't have words for them, but Hardy knows what, what she is thinking, but also he's making a comment too, um, yeah. a very strong comment. When he does something like that, is there any part of it that's, there's a sense of humor to it? Or do you think it's, Oh no, I was, I was going to, yeah. I mean, there is a little sardonic, like, Oh, you know, because she doesn't know what this word is and he, he does. So I, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but yeah. there is, there is a, a humor there and a kind of ironic distance, I guess. Hmm. Um, that's part of the experience of reading it. I think. Heidi, does it, is it intended to help us pass judgments on the characters mm -hmm. or I mean, like, obviously he has his yes. opinions about the world, 
about the culture that he's writing about and writing in. But are we supposed to look at that and then say, oh, well, she she is evidence of this Malthusian you know, worldview. And this is just one example where he does that. But are, is it is it are we supposed right. to get are we just trying is he helping us get to know the characters or actually is he priming us to pass some judgment on the characters based on the philosophies and economic theories and his own opinions about the characters? I think I think yes. I think yes, that's what he's doing. And inserting as you both just said uh, a little bit of a wink to us as the as the readers. Also remembering that this was serialized in a newspaper and mm-hmm. that impacts the tone of the work, right? He has to keep us interested into the next installment. Uh, and uh, there's, there's a target audience of people who are reading these newspapers, right? Um, they might've read an article about Thomas Malthuson, the same newspaper, right? So it, it does make... Uh, it does make an impact on the tone whenever we have a serialized novel. We see that in Dickens, we see it in Dostoevsky, we're seeing it here again in Hardy. Um, and, and I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind for the tone and also the editorial and authorial comments that we get throughout the, the work itself. Um, so I, I, I think that that's important. Because we're in chapter five, this is a this is a passage that I always think is really helpful to understand what Hardy does and how he does it, um, and in a less obvious way than that last sentence uh, the, or that last comment. This is on page eighty-five of chapter five when Tess is coming to, you know, the the what's supposed to be the sort of the ancient family estate mm-hmm. for the first time to seek her alleged um, relative. So just that it's just that big paragraph that takes up most of the page. I won't read the whole thing, but the first part of it, the crimson brick lodge came first in sight up to its eaves in dense evergreens. Tess thought this was the mansion itself till passing through the side wicket with some trepidation and onward to a point at which the drive took a turn. The house proper, the house proper stood in full view. It was of recent erection, indeed almost new and of the same rich color that formed such a contrast with the evergreens of the lodge. And he goes on and and gives some ancient imagery, but this, one line it was of recent erection indeed almost new this is a new house not an old one Hmm. and that you know that means that this is not an ancient homestead um it is an imposture it is and we'll find out pretty quickly on uh i think on the next page or so um this the family isn't ancient they adopted a name they're they're imposters they're they're fakes essentially tess doesn't realize this but the narrator is telling us this is a new house it's not an ancient home that's the family has lived in for generation upon generation Hmm. along with that karen you're bringing up another thing that you point out in the introduction which is the importance of place within this novel and, and how much we as readers need to pay attention to the setting because the setting in many cases stands in like a character, tells us just as much about the story uh, as the characters themselves. Uh, and what you just pointed out is exactly indicative of that. Yes, this home is a fake. It's an imposter. It's um, it's not what it pretends to be. And that 
without getting into spoilers, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what we'll see up later. unfold. Yeah, that, that will come up later. So, um, just for sake of time, I mentioned earlier that this book was censored, um, particularly when it was serialized. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, we're going to see how that shows up, I'm sure. And I don't mean to be too abrupt, but I, I know we, don't, we have a limited amount of time. And I wanted there's a couple things I want to touch, to make sure we touch on in this first episode. Was it, was it, is it the kind of thing, for example, that nowadays um, people who are reading this right now would, you know, blush at? <laughs> or is it things that are particular to the Victorian era? Um, maybe even that you'd have to know the era to understand why they were censored. Um, it could be, and there could be any number of reasons, things that that would, that would show up in, in, you know, in that way. Right. No, that, that's actually a really important question because there is nothing that is in uh, this version of the novel or in its original state that would make anyone think twice in today's age. Um, and even in this version, um, you know, at a, particularly pivotal moment at the end of, of phase the first. So it's pretty early on. Yeah. Um, if you're not reading, you won't even know, you have to read pretty carefully to know what happens just because as Heidi said earlier, Hardy is a Victorian. <laughs> um, and he was, you know, he, he was cutting edge for his time, but cutting edge then was, you know, is still, is still Victorian. And so um, it was really just sort of the, the craft, what was considered the crassness and crudeness, or even um, the idea of, of presenting a, a woman like Tess as being pure throughout the entirety of the book um, when, mm. you know, at some point she becomes what Victorians thought were less than pure. Yeah. So it's, so it's more of a question of theme as opposed to yes. like action right. or scene, right. you know, yes. some kind of right. action within a scene. Right. <clears throat> was, I mean, was any of it, you know, you had that one, there's that one section or a couple sections, actually, I think that you mentioned in the book where he's describing her in a way that is kind of euphemistic. I think you describe it somehow, something like that. Um, yeah, that, that's in, um, it's where he, I just saw that too, um, where he talks about Tess having a luxuriance of aspect or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And he just means she's well, has a well-developed chest and you would have, and that that makes her look older than she is and seem more womanly than she is. Mm. Um, and I think there's another place where, and maybe that's later where it says she, you know, she inherited that from her mother or something. Um, <laughs> so these, I mean, this is a very, very Victorian way of describing anything remotely connected to sexuality. And it's, and that that's why I put the notes because it's just, yeah. we're just not used to that language. But that kind of thing wouldn't have been censored out. It would have been written for the age. It's the age right. way of saying it. Right. Right. And, and Hardy self-centered. And we'll talk about that mm. later. Or maybe I have a note or a question. I think I addressed it in some way where he refined some of the details because one one criticism of, of the earlier version oh. is that it was too melodramatic, um, actually. And so there are mm. some tropes of melodrama that were in the first one uh, that I won't give away. And that he took that out. So that actually lends, that makes the novel better because it's more ambiguous and less, I mean, you know, I mean, one, one thing we've sort of already encountered is just the way, I mean, Alec is actually, I mean, he's just like the stereotypical villain in a lot of ways. I mean, even from the beginning, just this kind of sinister appearance and, um, and, <laughs> 
you know, the, the clues are all there. They come out more later, but. Yeah. Heidi, were you going to say something? Not necessarily, but I think that <laughs> it is. I, I mean, this is just all, all really helpful information in reading it. This is one of those novels that I, as, as, as you're talking, Karen, I'm realizing it's just so profoundly countercultural to modernity that some of these things that are very obvious to uh, people who are familiar with Victorian novels uh, um, are, I mean, some of this is just really obvious, but as modern readers, we, we, it's just so different. It's really helpful to have these interpretive points and these questions and these kind of historical and cultural context to the novel so that we, so that we don't enter it with kind of this like eyebrow raised modern jaded perspective. And some of it is just, um, most of it is because of different times, but some of it is that, that, the difference between England and America. I mean, I did a podcast recently. It was so delightful with some um, readers who live in England. They're from England. They're still in England. And one of them asked me um, if, you know, he he was so amused that I had to define the word um, style, S-T-I-L-E, the little, the, the thing that prevents cattle and livestock from going through a gate, but people can. And he asked me, he goes, do you not have styles everywhere in America? And I said, um, no, we don't. And he said, he said, you can't, of course, in England, you don't have to go far to be in the country, but anyone who goes in the country and is there for five minutes is going to encounter a style. And I just said, not here. So, so some of the differences are, you know, are also just mm. in, in terms of our, our geographical location, but many are because of the difference in time and culture. One of the things that I'm fascinated by in literature is the question of, or the notion rather, of of subtlety, because what we think of as subtlety in writing has evolved and it changes, and it can even differ from writer to writer. Nowadays, what we think of as, we, we nowadays people might read this book and say, well, it's not very subtle because some of the the imagery or the themes or whatever are kind of like worn on their sleeve or obvious or whatever. But that's that was the intention, right? Um, so we think of when you read a novel now, you think of subtlety as something different than then. Where do you see for um, Thomas Hardy uh, subtlety showing up? And I don't, and I don't mean to say that like subtlety is this like ultimate good in writing, but but where do you see his particular skills um, showing up in more subtle ways? I guess is another way of saying this. And if you want to answer it, like where do you see subtlety showing up? That's fine too. Either of you jump in here, uh, Karen. I'll ask you first, and then. Heidi, that gives you a chance to think. We'll throw Karen to the the wolves of this question first. Well, and I think I point this out in the discussion questions, but there are so many things that when you read for the first time in this novel, just seem to be just part of a story and significant and doesn't mean anything until you've read the whole story. Mm. And then you go back and go, wow, he was really doing something that yeah. doesn't strike one immediately. And, and since we're here, it's the first, you were reading the first part I, I will talk about without hopefully giving spoilers, but just the whole opening scene is absolutely brilliant because we have this, this parson coming along and encountering, um, Mr. Um, Durberville and 
and they have an innocent converse, what seems like an innocent conversation, but it it plants a seed that simple um, Parson saying, good night, Sir John. I mean, we, we know from reading even just these first few chapters that there's a whole chain of events that happens even just in these opening chapters. And, and by the way, um, that's also part of an Aristotelian tragedy is that there isn't, there's like a, a chain of events that once it is um, begun is unavoidable, like, mm. like this whole ch- series of events that happens like a domino effect. And so the domino effect begins um, when the parson calls John Derbyfield Sir John uh, and tells him about his supposedly, you know, his noble ancestry. Uh, and that gets this, you know, kind of ne'er-do-well John Derbyfield um, going and, and drunk Um and it was it was just an innocent comment, but as we go through the novel, and this isn't really a spoiler, I've already talked about it. Hardy was not fond of the Christian religion or Christian clergymen, so there's a way in which so many of the events that happen in the novel come back to this, you know, this parson sort of not minding his own business and and delving into ancestry and um, let that be a lesson to you. Yes, yes, and filling John with you know hot air. Mm. <laughs> And then, and then Tess has to live in the wake of her father's hot air. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever said that sentence before. Pretty sure I have. <laughs> I mean, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think that I noticed as I was reading it this time, the fairy tale motifs that keep coming up in this story. Hmm. Interesting. Three, we have three brothers, three mysterious brothers going through town. We have this young um innocent uh morally with a strong moral central center this girl um which is another thing that i noticed is how hard hardy works at the beginning of this novel uh, to establish tess as a morally superior person to her environment mm. um which is very fairy tale like right this the 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 princess um at the center um but also it's important, I think, in the novel because of what's coming for us to have a sympathy with her and to see her as a morally superior person, um, as an intellectually and morally uh, has this capacity to her that's unmet, that her environment is insufficient to. And um, she's kind hearted and protective and responsible and careful uh with the with such parents and in such a town and in such a place in society uh there's this there's this girl um who kind of towers above all of them in terms of her um her capacity for goodness um and uh, and so there there is a subtlety to that especially considering that as we keep saying and hammering uh, on this point he was victorian and so a girl like tess would have been looked down upon based on what's coming later she would have been the villain but instead she's not and he works very hard at the beginning of this novel to elicit sympathy for her um so that we're not just looking so we're not looking at her as the culprit of what's coming um, but other external forces that he's attempting to point to here through this novel. Hmm. Other about the subtlety. Yeah. Um, 
and this is a yeah, this is I mean, we're this is chapter four. This is like a probably the the pivotal moment in the reading for today and chapter four, this horrible, you know, this is the beginning of of the tragedy um when uh Tess, you know, when when the horse prince uh is killed in an accident. And again, yeah. all this has spiraled kind of inevitably from that comment from the parson, which made John, Sir John decide to have another drink and then he couldn't get up. And so Tess has to take the horse. I mean, all of these events is like one step leading to another, one uh yeah. cause to the next effect. But yeah. I get this, you know, maybe this is maybe other readers react differently, but um but the, the horse is killed um, when when the you know the whatever the name of the the what is I should know this I'm a horse person but when the the um, piece of the the wagon you know spears him to yeah. death yeah. the shaft and I mean not to get too graphic here but this is this I mean it's very believable it's yes. very detailed but it's a it's a profound and violent sexual symbol mm-hmm. and. You don't like the strawberries, like the strawberries. (laughs) Right. And, and once you think of it, of course, it's like, oh, wow. But you don't, it's not that to me, it's not that obvious at first because the way the scene is described and how so much else is going on this, you know, the conversation Tess is having with her brother about whether or not they live on a blighted star or good one, all of these things. And then, then the shaft spears, spears the horse and kills him. Um, it all seems like it's it's believable and it is believable, yeah. but it's also deeply, deeply symbolic and, and foreshadowing as well. One of the things I love about that scene is she's kind of having this dream, right? It's night and she's tired and all that. And what is she says? She's kind of, she, I guess she kind of drifts off or whatever, right? But in the way he presents that also allows the reader to kind of, drift off with her and so then when that happens there's this surprise so when he describes it you haven't been sort of you haven't been primed to have a theme or some kind of specific image thrown at you you've kind of, it's like it's it's a natural part of the story it's surprising for you as the reader and so when you come back to it later or you think about it enough or you make a connection to something else in the story then as you said you think oh well yeah that great job i should have seen that but he he gets you to those images without saying, look, it's an image. I mean, the strawberry one is is maybe a bit, look, it's an image, but not in a way that's like unnatural to the moment. It, really what you're getting there is, this guy is a creep of like just a super creep. <laughs> and he, and like, it happens so fast. His creepiness happens so fast too. Because <laughs> at first he seems like he's gonna be all kind to her, but he's just kind of priming her, you know. The thing that happens in that scene uh, with the strawberries and and even with the with with Prince the horse is and I and I is and we need to start looking for Tessa's character to be de- developed. We talked about how she's we, we like her, we admire her. She's good, full of goodness and beauty, um, but there's also a kind of passivity to her character. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't want these strawberries, and um, um, and yet partly because of her personality, partly because of the expectations of this time, she just sort of doesn't resist um and that's complicated Mm. yeah should we just stop there for the for the week just stop right there with with that comment it's complicated (laughs) i mean it it, it does kind of set up the rest of the book right so let's do this normally i would say do you have any final thoughts we'll wrap up um 
Karen, you've got a, you've got another podcast to do and then another podcast to do, and then probably another podcast to do. Um, so, you know, you sh- you're on the digital book tour. Uh, but I normally would say, what are your final thoughts? What are you looking forward to as we move into it? But what I'd love to hear from each of you is what do you think Thomas Hardy is best at in this novel or like it, as a writer that shows up through the rest of this novel that is worth looking for? Because we're so early. So the plot is only just kind of emerging. So in terms of his skill as a writer, what do you think he is best at that is worth keeping a lookout for? And maybe it's just repeating something we've already said, but I'd love to know, like kind of focus it, the, the question in that way. Uh, Karen, you want to go first? Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say what I just said more generally. Okay. Hardy is so good at complicating characters and situations. Okay. Yeah. It's not black and white. Um, yeah. And it really demands us to, to think about the complications. Mm. So would you say that that, like um, that goes, you said that um, Alex is kind of like a prototypical stereotypical villain. Is it also, would you say that that's also true of him? It's not as black and white. Yes. Yes, okay. absolutely. And then other main characters that come along too. They, they yeah. start out and Tess or Tess and Alec and other characters that come are both stereotypes and complications that, that Hardy humanizes so well. Mm. So he starts out as one thing, but it kind of, Mm-hmm. You think you have a grasp of it at first and then it emerges, it kind of merges into something else as well? Yes. Okay. Um, Heidi. I also am going to echo something Karen said, which is his plotting is remarkable. Like Thomas Hardy is a master upon Jude the Obscure is the same way because all these things happen in Jude the Obscure that are like, that doesn't happen to regular humans, but within the, <laughs> within the novel, it totally works. And at every point along the way in this novel and in Judy Obscure and in his other work, you start to ask exactly the question that Karen pointed out. When could anybody have broken this cycle? Was it all inevitable from the beginning, from the minute that 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 person called him Sir John? Everything that happens after that feels inevitable as you're reading it. Mm. And yet it raises these questions of um, social commentary, personal psychology, um, and and free will. At what point could somebody have broken the chain? And that, I think, goes to Karen's comment of the complicated nature of the characters and their decisions and choices and acts of will, um, and also just kind of a larger zooming out, a larger question about um, teleology, about 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 the world, about the nature of the world, and about the yeah. interaction of determinism and free will. Yeah, but we haven't even talked about the conversations about the stars and fate, and the conversation with Abraham about how far the Twinklers were and whether God was on the other side of them. <laughs> Um, so I'm sure we'll get into those themes. Um, I, I also just want to point out the man can write a sentence. Like, I feel like you can, you read parts of this book and could anybody else, there's sentences that I, you could, you just open it up and you're like, yeah, that's probably Thomas Hardy. There's this one on 56 that I, I, I kind of laughed at because I thought you're just not going to find this not, not, not laughed at in a negative way, but just kind of like, man, that's Thomas Hardy, <laughs> where he, where it, go, it starts, knock, 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 went the cradle. 
The candle flame stretched itself tall and began jigging up and down. The water dribbled from the matron's elbows and the song galloped on to the end of the verse, Mrs. Derbyfield regarding her daughter the while. Even now, when burdened with a young family, Joan Derbyfield was a passionate lover of tune. No ditty floated into Blackmore Vale from the outer world, but Tess's mother caught up its notation in a week. <laughs> His way of putting words together and like every paragraph has some kind of... Uh, well, poetry to them, right? Like, and these, there's an image floating on every sentence. It's, it's, it's really, uh, really interesting writing and really like unique writing. I feel, you know, and I haven't read everything by Thomas Hardy, but I have read a lot of his poetry and you can see the poet in, in every line of this, this novel. Okay. I guess we're done. Should we be done? <laughs> there's so much more to come. <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah. Yeah. And we're going to spend, you know, the next several weeks, uh, uh, you know, on this, if you have questions for us, we will do the Q and a episode at the end, but with a book this long and complicated, we also would love to hear from you throughout. So if you want to send questions to me, you can email them to David at goldberrybooks.com. You can also leave comments on our Substack page under where we post the episode and that's closereads.substack.com. And then you can also, of course, put them on the Facebook page and we'll try to keep track of some of them. And, uh, you know, when we see recurring questions or things coming up, confusions, anything like that. We'll try to address as many as we can in the natural flow of conversation. Um, thanks, Karen. Thank you so much for, you. for joining us. This is going to be really fun. Uh, it's always great to have you on. I know. Thank you. It's like a reunion. It is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, is so, this is so great. I'm personally Heidi, delighted. <laughs> I am too. Heidi, before we go, where are we on Anna Karenina on the, the bonus episodes for the subscribers? Just want to see if we can get a quick yeah, update from you on that. Yeah, we just just got to the moment that everything has been converging towards uh, at the end of section seven part Mm. two so if you have been wondering what happens to anna you find out and we talk about it and then we only have one short section left and then um and then we'll close out this series of episodes and then we begin another novel and we need lots of feedback on that from y'all yeah. So on that note, I'm going to post this week. Well, by, by the time you hear this, it might already be up. But if you are a subscriber of Close Reads HQ, if you're supporting the show through that, first of all, thank you very much. But I'm going to post, uh, they have these things called threads. So I'm going to post a thread for the subscribers with the question and some options of some books that you can respond to. So I'm going to put in some books that we've talked about. And then in the comments, pick kind of give us a reason why you think we should choose one of those to do as our next uh, subscriber exclusive series. Um, so it'll be like, it'll look like a regular post, but you can leave comments and respond to it. It's the specific, this, it's the specific Substack style of threading. Um, so that'll be up and, and you can respond to that and we'll post four or five options and then give us a little defense for the one that you think that we should do. So I thought about just doing a poll, but that's kind of a little bit, you know, that, that doesn't give us all the information sometimes. So it gives you a chance to leave a couple sentences defending why you think we should read. Oh, I don't know. Whatever you think we should read of the options that we give. So we'll give about five options that have come up in the past, maybe one that hasn't, and then let you guys kind of leave your, make your case. And then we'll decide from that. Um, we might just choose the one that's got the most votes, so to speak. Um, or maybe we'll try to, we'll go with the most, uh, convincing case. We'll, we'll we'll talk about it and we'll come to a conclusion of the next this the next book to do. Such a fun idea. So uh, that will that'll be up by the time you listen to this on Friday the twenty second. You should have the option to go respond to that, and we'll give that about a week to kind of 
work itself out, maybe five, five days, something like that to kind of work itself out before we choose. And then we'll get a schedule up and give you the option to, to get moving on that. So um, again, if you um, are subscribing, thank you so much. If you haven't, there's a lot of great content. Heidi's most recent column on duty and desire went up this week. We've got lots of great bonus bonus writing, bonus reviews. We've got Heidi and I are going to do a little quick, a quick look conversation on um, um, Emily St. John Mendel's new novel, The Sea of Tranquility. She's the writer of Station Eleven. So there's just a lot of great content. You can um, support the show by subscribing and uh, it just helps us, you know, pay the bills, uh, makes this, this show possible. And uh, we're, we're grateful. As Graham always says, uh, Close Reads is brought to you uh, it's, it's a listener-supported show, but the phrase listener-supported is probably stolen by like PBS or something, so we can't use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, for Heidi White and for Karen Swallow Pryor, and for Tim McIntosh, who's off getting ready to get married or something, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.